Hi, and welcome to Shadow Talk's weekly intelligence summary track, where our team of analysts dive into the top threat intelligence stories each week. To read their full findings and analysis, make sure to visit resources.digitalshadows.com. Now here's your host, Harrison Van Riper. And joining me now is James Chappell, co-founder of Digital Shadows, as well as our data privacy officer, uh, along with Rick Holland, our chief information security officer. Gentlemen, how are you both doing today? Doing good. Thanks. Thanks, Harrison. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, so I kind of want to just get a discussion rolling between you two. Um, Marriott was fined about $124 million for the Starwood rewards breach, which occurred uh, back in 2015, but was announced in 2018. Uh, and that resulted in a lot of customer data being stolen, including passport information, encrypted payment card information, and other uh, personally identifiable information. Um, so yeah, so I kind of wanted to just get a discussion rolling between you two. So what was y'all's initial kind of thoughts on this? It's a pretty pretty major fine. Um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you look up until sort of May of uh, this year, the fines from the whole of Europe for the General Data Protection Regulation, which was this this new regulation that came in 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 May last year, um, that the whole fine for the whole of Europe was fifty six million. Um, and this just pretty much this and, and one other fine pretty much doubles. Uh, the amount of revenue being taken in by um, regulators from GDPR. So it, it's, pretty, it's interesting when GDPR came about, it seemed like it was a little bit, you know, the, the fines were actually going to be quite small, even though everyone said it was going to be really large. And now you've got these, these really big fines coming up. I think that's quite, quite significant. And, and probably uh, I think what the Information Commissioner's Office is doing here is trying to set a bit of a precedent. Yeah, I think it's almost up until... You know, enforcement kicking in in May, it's almost been anticlimactic. There was all this buildup and all this hype around GDPR. And I think most people's biggest pain point, joking-wise, was accepting those cookie messages. <laughs> was like the most you know uh, uh, serious implication for GDPR for most people. I think the game has changed here with these uh, two uh, proposed fines. I think that's uh, important to, to clarify as well. There, There's still a process to go through, but these have been announced um, that they will be coming, um, but there is a long road ahead. So it's really, yeah, I think it's, really, it's it's a very, very interesting development. So I guess a lot of folks now are sort of, when GDPR was announced uh, back, back in 2018 or, or prior to it, there was this uh, chicken licking situation where, you know, the sky is falling, we're going to run for the hills, it's going to be giant fines. And then, you know, we had a year of actually not very big fines at all. And now all of a sudden the things that we were worried about the time ago are, are properly happening it's, uh, so it, it's 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 interesting why do you think rick we've gone from like sort of smaller fines to these larger fines what do you reckon well i think part of it's kind of what kind of kind of what you said right it's there here's the teeth behind it and you always see this when there's new regulations that came out you saw this in the u.s with pci and data security suite fines would start to come out you saw this with HIPAA and then high tech came along to give it teeth and enforcement. Uh, so it, it, at least in the US, I see this kind of following similar types of, of regulations. But I think for those that were sitting on the sidelines and I've talked to both as a uh, analyst at Forrester and in my role here and talking to customers and prospects where people, some in the US were sitting on the sidelines and just waiting to see who was gonna get fined or some people, organizations thought that it was just gonna be the, the Facebooks of the world and the very large social media brands that were gonna get popped. Um, and now we're seeing that it, it isn't just those organizations. So 
you know, I think it's a wake up call, you know, to any multinational global company um, that uh, personal data of EU citizens matters. And if you're not a good steward of that data, you could face the wrath of, I would say at this point, potential fines, but certainly things aren't looking good right now. Right. And I mean, so, uh, you know, you mentioned the multinational companies. What what do you think that these kinds of, you know, global companies should do uh, in these situations? Talk to their lawyers. Um, <laughs> and we were kind of joking around before is that we, we cannot give legal advice. Um, and so we can give some observations and things like that. But companies should definitely be talking to their to their councils. And probably in a lot of cases, it's going to be an external council, right? Um, because they probably don't have the in-house privacy or EU um, domain knowledge uh, for a lot of the U.S.-based multinationals. So I think the first step is talk to your lawyers, ask what this means. I think everyone's going to be watching, you know, this appeals process, you know, over the next several months, if not longer, to, to see what happens. Uh, but yeah, my first recommendation is talk to legal. Um, and, and I know JC for us often is the... Uh, the, the, as his role as the DPO, right, is talking to to our, our own counsel and getting perspective on this sort of stuff. So so what do you think, JC? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, always get good legal advice. That's always my number one bit of advice. Don't, don't just take what you hear in a podcast as, 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 as advice. But I, I think it is interesting um, looking at how this is rolled out. So the, when people put in place their controls for GDPR, they did it based on you know how we someone were taking a wait and see approach i kind of we are we have we have waited and now we have seen and i think now is the time to to go back to boards and say hey look you know when we were first reporting to you how large the risk this was for our business that seems to have materially changed off the back of this it's very interesting that the international side of this so marriott is obviously originally a us founded business but they do operate a UK arm. And I think it's the UK arm which is uh, being uh, sort of explored by the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, some businesses outside of Europe and outside of the UK might feel that uh, this is less relevant, doesn't apply to them as much. And we've certainly seen sort of things like websites sort of stopping serving content to Europe because of uh, the introduction of some of the new privacy leg legislations. But actually, it, um, what, Europe, what the European regulators are saying is if it's data relating to a European citizen, they'll still sort of come after you. And then you go down to the rather foggy world of international law where a regulator is going to try and extend themselves overseas. But I think Marriott are, are in particular, you know, a little bit exposed here because they do have, a, they do operate and, and manage a UK business. And that seems to be the basis of this particular um, statement around a, an in, impending fine. Do you think this fine was below the 2%, you know, the lower bound of what the proposed fines could be? Uh, if you look at Marriott's 2018, um, annual revenue um do you think the number feels significant to me but what do you think uh jc about you know could have been up to four percent you know on the upper bound uh you know what are your thoughts there as far as is this significant how significant is the the fine itself so yeah the regulation says it's 20 million euros or for up to up to four percent of revenue whichever is the greater of those two so they, they picked two percent which is is sort of greater than, than that. Um, I, I think, well, I mean, 
we haven't yet seen a 4% fine. This is the largest fine ever given under this regulation. In theory, it could be larger for the next ones. We don't really know yet what will, what will happen. I think they're being made a little bit of an example of. I, I think it's, it's reasonable to be reasonable to say. Um, I think, though, it's very hard to call where we go from here. Um, I, it sounds like this is the beginning of some kind of campaign. What's interesting is what will happen to the rest of the European regulators. So they, so far, they've not done anything. You know, Germany, France, Spain, Italy haven't done anything close to this kind of scale. So it sort of, it, you know, this sets a precedent not just for the UK but for those regulators as well. So it, we, I mean, <laughs> you never really know what stands in the future, but we should be forecasting much larger uh, ones to come. I would think. Do you? Is there? A possibility, and you know far more about this than me, but is there a possibility that the French, the German will get in on this action as well and could also issue fines? Or how, how would it, I mean, this is being led by the UK, but what can we expect from the other regular regulators getting on board these, these fines? Yeah, so, so the law is a regulation. And under European law, regulations cover um, any EU member, which UK still currently is in, in the EU, just for the benefit of doubt. Um, uh, and we'll, we should come on and talk about Brexit in a minute. Um, but the, the, it's sort of quite interesting to see. Uh, so in theory, they're sort of regulated by the European sort of super governance structure, um, which sort of encourages people to o operate in a similar way. So um, and there's some quite interesting disputes at the moment between, uh, for example, Google and uh, the European uh, sort of information bodies as well and there's some ongoing discussion around the ads uh, side of Google right now um, which has been quite controversial there's sort of a, a figure of 50 million dollars being sorry euros being discussed there more recently so but I, I think this <laughs> they might be a game of one-upmanship you never know uh, from the rest of Europe what's interesting though if you compare this to big almost bigger breaches at 87 million people's uh, data were exposed in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was a UK company, so subject to um, the old laws in the UK at the time. It only received you know, the maximum fine, which was £500,000, which seems tiny in comparison to this one. So we've really gone quite a long way in a very short space of time, and it all came down to timing, it seems. Where do you see, what do you think this means for global privacy regulation. In the U.S., we've heard for quite some time about federal level uh, privacy regulation, regulation. I'm quite skeptical <clears throat> of anyone in Washington, D.C. passing anything. Um, so I'm not really certain that, that that would happen and more likely to happen at the state level, like you see in California and things like that. But what do you think is coming um, for the future there beyond Europe? And what does this mean for other countries? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So if you look at uh, countries like Singapore, they have the uh, PDPA, as they refer it to, uh, which is not uh, wholly dissimilar to GDPR. In Australia, you've got things like the Australian Privacy Principles, and even in countries like South Africa, who tend to uh, be, you know, not not quite as speed uh, quick to to put implement sort of rules like this. Even they have quite a detailed sort of privacy structure. What does appear apparent is that these structures uh, are generally based in or around. Uh, they have a lot of similarities with the general data protection regulation that's used in Europe. 
So it seems like GDPR is becoming a little bit of almost a high watermark, if you will, uh, for, for these laws. And it seems, um, certainly I've found in some of our compliance work, complying with GDPR actually gets you quite a long way down the road of complying with other uh, countries' laws. And it's generally only a few small tweaks that are required to, to get you up to that level. So I, I, you know, my advice, um, although it's not legal, uh, <laughs> you know, my advice would be, um, you know, keep, keep a focus on um, uh, GDPR and you'll, you'll get a lot, a lot of value uh, by following that and uh, it should stand you in good stead internationally. You still will have to do other work, but it, it'll certainly get you a long way down that road. So we've kind of talked about what's happened and, you know, sort of an assessment around that. Um, so what can we kind of expect moving forward? You know, what should companies be thinking about doing now uh, that can maybe help prevent something like this from happening or, you know, just kind of keep an eye on things? What, what can they do? Well, I think one thing, and, and this is the basics, but the basics aren't easy. Again, it's, it's kind of crown jewels analysis especially around in, in, in this specific case around EU citizen data, um, PII, personal data, you know, do companies know where that is um, and are they monitoring for it? And I think leading up to GDPR, you saw a lot of consultancies coming in and doing data discovery. It actually reminded me back in the day, uh, I worked with the PCI data security suite quite a bit and you were doing these data discovery exercises to find out where payment cards were in your environment. So I think even some companies may have sat on the sidelines a little bit leading up to GDPR enforcement. Again, this cuts back to JC's comment about need to talk to the board and said things have changed. We're going to need to change some of our investment now because the regulator is, is, is issuing these fines. So I think data discovery will always be a key component. Where I often see companies struggle there is, you know, A, a you struggle internal data discovery, but then external. And obviously this is something that Digital Shadows does a really good job of, if I do say so myself. <laughs> But helping you to continuously monitor your digital footprint so that if data is leaving your environment, if data has left your environment, you can quickly identify it, make the appropriate remediations, and maybe minimize the amount of loss that's occurring. So I really think it's about discovery, visibility, and then quickly turning around and trying to remediate any kind of challenges that you might have. I think this is yet another um, example of how critical third-party risk management is. And now being responsible for it here at Digital Shadows, I fully appreciate that it is challenging. And JC did it before I came on board as CISO. So I think we both understand the pain associated with it. Uh, this kind of makes me think of the Verizon Yahoo acquisition as well and how much of that sales um, price went down uh, because of, uh, of, uh, of a loss of data and intrusion there. Uh, you know, it's almost like you break, you buy. If you acquire someone, you are acquiring all of their cyber risks as well. Um, and I think that's something that people need to think about. And doing third-party risk management is a challenge, as we said. And doing it in a merger and acquisition uh, scenario is a challenge. You've got to imagine you're going to have your, your questionnaires that everybody loves and loathes at the same time. Uh, but trying to get something more concrete, you know, having auditors on site doing actual analysis of the environment. It's, you're, you're taking a lot of risk on and a lot of risk that you may not have good visibility into. I actually think it's another one is like if you're doing M&A or you're doing um, partnering, what's the digital footprint of your partner look like? You know, are they hemorrhaging data? Do they have tons of accounts that are, um, you know, candidates for account takeover because they've been in these credential dumps and things like that? 
I think this is yet another reason to, to prioritize third-party risk management, both for the vendors you have in your portfolio, but then obviously M&A as well. I mean, it's not, I, I think that's a great point, Rick. And I think not only is it the suppliers or the, or the companies that you might acquire or bring in themselves, it's their suppliers. And I think, you know, most IT teams now outsource that work to a third party. So having a, uh, an approach to data privacy that not only looks at the contractual obligations, but really measures the uh, risks and, and the, the, the leakage from not just your immediate supply chain, but then the key suppliers for those uh, those suppliers, it's, it's, it's really, really important. So it, it, you, we used to be, you could rely on a contract. I think we're entering an age where you've got to go beyond that these days. Yeah. And I mean, the amounts of the amounts of data that are already out there available, right? So like in our in the research that Photon put out just recently, um, you know, 2.3 billion files are already just kind of sitting out there um, on open file stores. So all that information that could be personal information, it could be, you know, things that that a regulation like this could apply to. A lot of that is already out there. So, um, yeah, I think keeping an eye on it is obviously a, a big, a big aspect of it. So, so I think I think it's quite an important thing to talk about there. Uh, one is what gets reported versus what is there. Um, so, if you look at what's reported up until May last year, we know from the IAPP's research. I recommend looking at their website. What's the uh, IAPP, JC, for those that may not be familiar? It's the uh, Information Assurance and Privacy Practitioners Organization. So it's a professional body that um, privacy practitioners contribute to and collaborate with. And it's, uh, they produce some really fantastic uh, stats and, and materials. Um, and they, they produce this sort of infographic sort of explain what happened uh, in the last year with, G with uh, GDPR. And one of the really interesting things it picks out is there's only across the whole of Europe, the entirety of Europe, there's only... 89,000 uh, breach notifications. So this is where a company has come along to the regulator and said, oh, hey, I, I messed up. I'm just letting you know we, we had a, a breach. And that could be anything from a few records, you know, someone accidentally BCCing some email addresses on an email. That is a officially a breach, which uh, in theory requires reporting, all the way through to, whoops, I left my entire customer database on the internet and uh, out went all the details. So. It's really interesting. So you compare some of the numbers that Harrison mentions there from the, the um, some of that online research that was done by the Photon Group and this number. They're diametrically opposed. They're they're very very different numbers. So what we do know is what's getting reported is only a very small um, part of the problem. And I, I know Rick. I know how you like icebergs. So uh, <laughs> I don't really. You know, is there a data privacy iceberg? Well, I mean, I, I'm. That seems like a, a little bit fuzzy, but um, the, it, there certainly does seem to be a lot more out there that, that maybe hasn't yet come to light. And uh, I think that's really something organisations need to wrap their head around and have a think about, um, be, it, be it with sort of, you know, services that are available that do that or, you know, just by auditing what's out there. It's really, really important to understand that. So I'm going to ask you, Rick, to kind of give me your opinion on this. What does a good sort of breach notification look like what does that process look like because you obviously you've seen a lot of things you know in the last couple of years of breach notifications not going well um what do you think would be an ideal scenario for for that situation we actually uh 
discussed this as an executive team recently, and I think we may have even mentioned it maybe on a previous podcast, uh, where we did a tabletop exercise and we actually went through with the team as how would we do a breach notification. And, you know, we didn't have all the answers. Um, I don't think everyone, anyone ever does, but I, I did have a bit of a Twitter rant yesterday on breach notification in general. And it actually ties back to even stuff I did at Forrester at Forrester. I wrote a blog, which I still, um, still kind of makes me laugh. And I, I called it Mean Time Before CEO Apology um, as a new uh, incident response metric. Um, and that's how long it takes a CEO to do a mea culpa video. Um, but a couple things that, that come to mind that are like really bad cliches is one is saying we take our customers' data and privacy and security seriously. Saying that after the fact, I, I, think, I find it to be patronizing as a customer of services that have, have, have lost my data. I find that to be patronizing. Now, I understand that legal is going to get involved and there's class action lawsuit potential. There's a lot of legal things out there. So this is also another one where you'd want to check with your legal. But I think trying to find something where you acknowledge that you could have done better through whatever swim lane framework legal will allow you. Again, I'm not ignorant to the, the legalities here, but that that you know, everyone is going to have an intrusion. Um, hopefully not everyone has an intrusion to a level where you have to do a public notification on it. Um, maybe it's something minor, you know, you know, I think you need to make the right choice about disclosing intrusions and things like that. But how you respond to it is the, you know, if you look back over the past five years, you'll see lots of, exa- it's probably harder to find good examples, good examples yeah. of the way people have responded to it. So also another one that drives me crazy is when people say an advanced attacker, as if that's some force field um, or it's like Neo in the Matrix and I'm doing my little Neo <laughs> bullet time dodging thing is going to get you out of hot water. I think, you know, being upfront as possible, I think being empathetic in whatever framework legal will allow you to have empathy um, would, would, be, would be a really good thing. I don't know, JC, you, you, you track this as well. What do you think is good? What do you think is bad? I think being uh, having an honest dialogue with your customers and those affected definitely does your brand uh, some good. Uh, like you say, there are also obviously uh, positions that have to be taken from a, from a legal perspective. So do do take legal advice. But I think you know the more authentic you can be in that response, like you know saying, "Hey, look, we you know we expect we 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 want to do better for you. Uh, this this clearly isn't good enough." You know, I think I think it does go a long way with me as a consumer. I, I think I think the other thing is um, there are a bunch of requirements from the legal perspective. So the legislation says you must notify the regulator within 72 hours of becoming aware that a breach has occurred. So being ready to do those notifications as soon as you uh, there's two um, there's two groups of people you notify. One is the sort of legal bit, which is telling the authorities that are, are being there in the US or the UK, making sure you're teed up and ready to tell them in a, in a timely manner about it. But then there's the other one, which is the PR side, which is if you've let customers down, how you have that dialogue and, and leave it, you know, looking trustworthy and, and, and being good, I, I think follows a lot of other types of incident response um, patterns. So if you look at you know, how other if you look at like the Norse Hydro, for example, you know how they did that IR response. They 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 were actually very honest about it, and they, they I think because they were more honest and more authentic, that actually left that process you know with more 
trust and and you know they, the thing that mattered was that they got the power back online and that's what they did actually yeah i think that's actually a really good example um is the norse hydro thing because they actually came out they were they were putting up videos on like youtube of how they were trying to remediate their systems and get the ransomware out of their out of their environment and i mean i thought i personally i agree with you i think that that was a very good uh sort of i don't know if it was a strategy of, i don't know if it was planned or what but that's just kind of how how the event played out. So I thought that that was a really good example. I don't know for, for the listeners out there. Um, if you have examples of people that have done it well, maybe hit the photon, um, Twitter handle and maybe we can start some conversation on it as well. Maybe I could do a follow up blog on what does good notification look like, or what are some best practices, um, for that? Because everyone should have a playbook here, no matter what the data type is, is lost, no matter who the regulator is, even if there's no regulator in the mix and you're just going to do a notification because it's the right thing to do is having the playbook, having PR, having marketing, um, having all your stakeholders in the mix is really key and you want to know about it in advance. So yeah, if somebody's got some, some suggestions on best practices or good examples, hit us up on Twitter and then uh, we'll do a follow-up blog on it here in the next couple of weeks. At photon underscore research. That is our Twitter handle. And then what was yours? Yours is Rick Rick H Holland. Yeah, Rick H Holland with two H's. And JC, what 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 is your Twitter handle? <laughs> um, I, I I confuse people by having the Twitter handle Jimmy Chapel C H A W P E W L, but uh, where my first name is James, there was the James Chapel got it first, so I'm Jim. Or or JC to all of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, well, great. I mean, this was a great discussion. I think. Um, I think a lot of people would be really interested in it. So, so thank you both for joining today. Yeah, good to be on again. Yeah, thanks for the time. All right, thanks. 